Welcome to the Mondial Learning Podcast. I'm Robert Wells and I'm your host. Today I'm excited to welcome Sage and George, CEO of Matchbook Learning. Matchbook Learning is a non-profit charter management organisation based in the US. It works with so-called turnaround schools. These are schools scoring in the bottom 5%. It implements a unique pedagogy centred upon personalisation through the clever use of new technology. Matchbook currently runs three charter schools in the northeast of the US and has been a recipient of numerous awards since it started in 2011. Hi Sajan, I'd like to start off by asking you a little bit about your background. Am I correct in thinking that you didn't actually start off working in education? Yeah, I'm not an educator by training. So um, I started my career doing turnarounds, corporate turnarounds, helping companies that were in crisis. Uh, did that for a number of years. Canada, Australia, the US. And then um, in 2003, got a really interesting assignment to try to turn around a school district. Never before had we done that. Never before had a turnaround firm ever done that. Um, and we were asked by the St. Louis school system to come in and try and turn around their school system. It was such a fascinating experience um, that we thought, well, maybe there's a way to develop a dedicated practice. And so we formed one. And after St. Louis, we were in New Orleans helping rebuild that school system. And then Katrina hit and we began rebuilding it from scratch. And then New York City and then Washington, D.C. and Detroit. And then in 2011, I left that corporate turnaround work to focus full time on, on creating and launching Matchbook Learning, which would try to take those turnaround skills and instead of applying them to school districts, apply them to individual schools, schools that were failing. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the differences between turning around a school and turning around the company? Turnarounds are generally hard. Crisis is a crisis. Lack of leadership, lack of vision, resource allocation decisions, optimization decisions, human capital decisions. You're going to face whether you're turning around a company or a school. Um, a couple of things that make schools uniquely hard is in companies, there's a common understanding of what the, what the bottom line is, what you're trying to turn around. And the formula or equation to do that, right? Revenues less expenditures equals net income. And so we need to increase our revenues, decrease our costs, improve our return on capital to maximize our net income and our cash flow. And generally, if you can come up with a strategy that shows that, you can generally get buy-in to do that, whether that's building a new plant, closing down a plant, creating a new product line, rationalizing your existing customer base. And education, while there's a common agreement that the bottom line is around student achievement and student growth, there's all kinds of debates and theories on what is that formula? What does it look like? And unlike in corporations where you're trying to maybe convince a board of directors, right? Or a management team, this is the strategy we need to execute. A public school, the owners is Joe Parent, right? It's, it's this, the, the, and so um, you're adding a level of complexity. There is no consensus. There is no majority rule. Um, and so the efforts that you make, if they're going to be sustainable in a corporation, they can be top down. Edict comes down from the CEO and this is the way we're going to do it. And we're going to price our product like this. And we're going to sell it in these markets. End of discussion. And in a school, it really does have to be bottoms up. Um, so there's, there's a, there's a different way to get to sustainability and scalability. Um, and because candidly, you're dealing with children, 
the time frame and the level of mistakes and failures are allowed is much shorter and much lower than you know people might not care if your app uh, didn't work and you know customers weren't satisfied with your product at the end of the day you can't you know you don't have that luxury when you're educating children and so while a lot of the framework and the thinking may be similar the practices and the execution can look very different during this period what approaches were you actually using to turn around the schools it was a lot more around management we were really trying to look at the district as a structure and trying to improve the district's ability to support schools, to clear hurdles and obstacles in schools, to create structures and processes that streamline decision-making for schools. Um, so you were looking at resource allocation, you were looking at management structure, you were looking at finances, you were looking at key operating supports um, in the way that the system supported the schools, empowering principals, et cetera. So um, those strategies tended to be hierarchical and they tended to be deeply based around organizational structure, resource allocation and resource optimization. Whereas in a school, in an individual school, there's not a huge hierarchy and the resource allocation decisions while important aren't as varied and multiplex because you're not dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars within a single school. So then it becomes more around what's the particular model and delivery of instruction, uh, which is where I think we're pretty unique. Whereas at the district level, we weren't trying to decide for, you know, a hundred schools what their model of instruction should be. We were letting, the, for the most part, principals decide that. And then how do we best support their resource allocation, decision-making and, and processes to enable that to happen in the best way possible. So that leads us nicely into talking about Matchbook. Um, when you take over a school, how does that work? Do schools opt in? Uh, what's the process? Yeah, so we're, we're always invited in. Um, generally, the state or the district um, or the charter authorizer has intervened in a failing school and has requested that we come and um, take over the school, implement and run, you know, and, and staff it with our people and are held accountable for the results of that turnaround. So in exchange for that autonomy over the school, um, we get we have accountability back. So when you take over a school, do you generally tend to work with the staff who are already there? Yes. Um, we, you know, these are usually schools that are failing and, and, um, and there are many reasons for that failure. We don't necessarily keep all of the staff, but for the staff that, A, uh, are willing to stay on with us, are willing to be coached and trained during our model, we're willing to accept the accountability that we have for the school, um, then we're willing to work with them. And there's a decent number that agree to those conditions. And there's always ones that, that don't. And so it's a little bit of both, I would say, kind of a, a bit of a 50-50 mix. And I guess the staff need to come up to speed with your model of education because it's quite different, isn't it? Completely. Yeah. It's a di completely different model of education. When you think of a traditional model of education where Kids are moved basically in groups through a printed curriculum at the same pace and sequence and learning style to cover the same amount of material, to write the same test at the same time, regardless of their starting point, regardless of their pace of learning, regardless of their learning style. Um, we 
completely disrupt that. We create an individual learning pathway for every student that meets every student uniquely at that starting point, allows them to progress based on how they prefer to learn at their own pace of learning, taking assessments when they're ready for them at the pace of learning that they can most handle. Could you explain that in a bit more detail? Because there's a four-part system, isn't there? There is. Our kids go through a cycle of learn, conference, apply, and assess, those four stages. In the learn, learn and practice stage, students choose from a playlist of options. Think iTunes. For every standard, they can choose 20 different ways they, they can learn a topic, like how to add fractions. The students choose. We've curated what we think are the 20 best ways. They click on that playlist and they choose, and it could be a video or an article or a performance task. But the idea is that we give different types and ways of learning and kids choose so they exercise ownership over how they learn. Once they finish their playlist, then they move to the conference. There's two levels to the second stage of our learning cycle. At the conference, there's a peer-to-peer -peer conference where you explain to another peer what you've done, how you've done it, uh, what the learning target was, um, explaining it in your own words and why it's relevant to your life. Your peer confirms you've done those steps and moves you on to the teacher conference. At the teacher conference, the teacher is checking for understanding, looking for gaps. They can pull a small group of kids if they're all working on the same standard and do a teacher, a teacher small group. Once the teacher confirms, yes, you've completed the conference successfully, then they move to the third stage, which is the apply. And the apply stage, uh, for every standard the st student must learn, they have to apply what they learn, create, make, build, do something. If it's English language arts, it may be um, uh, writing a particular narrative essay on the topic. If it's science, it might be a lab experiment. And that apply is graded on a rubric, a scale of one to four, and they have to get at least a three out of four, meaning they have to master their level of understanding before they move on. Nobody moves on until that mastery level of understanding as determined by the teacher happens. Once they finish the apply, they go to the final stage, which is the assessment stage. And that's an independent assessment, uh, an online test. that tests that, that standard, how to add fractions. Usually it's 10 questions. And once they pass that, they then move to the next learn. So learn, conference, apply, assess, complete it, move on to the next learn. So if you were in a matchbook classroom, you would see students at one of those four stages. And you would see whatever stage they're at, they would be at their unique competency level. So if I might have a class of seventh graders, age-wise, they're all in the seventh grade. But some kids could be working on fourth grade work, some on ninth grade work, some on seventh, some on sixth. And the pace of learning that they go is individualized as well. So for kids that are further behind, we want to accelerate their pacing as fast as possible. Because those are, and in fact, that's the majority of kids that we're serving because the school was failing. So they're generally behind grade level. But because of this individualized level, we don't wait till the end of the semester or the end of the year to promote them. If they master the fourth grade work at, and it's October, we move them to fifth grade work. If they master that by December, we move them to sixth grade work. So in our model, unlike a traditional school, you can have kids grow multiple years in a single year, which most schools can't accommodate that. If you're a seventh grader, you're only going to get the seventh grade content and you're going to write the seventh grade test at the end of the year. And if you weren't ready for that too bad, you get one shot. And if you were ready for it at the beginning of the year and really could have handled more advanced work, too bad. But in our model, both sets of students can, um, can be addressed and everything in between. This all sounds great in theory, but in practice, as a teacher, how do you manage that level of differentiation? Yes. So this is why we spent a fair amount of time and effort and energy 
uh, with the gracious support of a couple of philanthropic funders to uh, build out our own open source technology platform we call Spark. And Spark, it tracks, if you've got 25 kids in your class, it tracks all 25 learning paths. It tracks what stage of four stages they're in. It notifies to the teacher real time when a student is ready to conference or when a student is ready to have their uh, project graded. Um, it prioritizes and rank orders those so this teacher can quickly figure out where and when she needs to be in the classroom with which students. And so she pulls up her dashboard, sees which students are progressing, how long they're progressing, and it notifies them so-and-so is ready for a conference, so-and-so is ready for an assessment, and priority ranks that. If we didn't have the technology, then I, I would agree. It would be uh, a nightmare for a student or for a teacher to try to manage and coordinate all 25 different learning pathways. And candidly, that's the why, that's the reason why most traditional schools are structured the way they do. They're structured not for the benefit of the student, but really for the benefit of the teacher. Move through this lesson for this day for this long. And when you teacher think they're ready, you move them again. When you think they're ready for the test, you may give them the test, regardless of their pace of learning or their starting point. Um, it's convenient for the teacher, but it's generally pretty ineffective for the students. So in terms of how Sparks actually works, does it assess the students or is that something that's still done by the teacher? Yeah, the, yeah, the teacher's marking the test, the teacher's giving the feedback, the teacher's looking at their projects and giving feedback. We're capturing what the teacher's grading in Spark. And we're capturing where the students are moving in, in Spark, each of those four cycles. But we don't rely on the computers to provide that meaningful feedback. We still think the magic in a classroom is that teacher to student interaction. So what we're freeing the teacher up to do, if you imagine every single lesson already preloaded in Spark, every single assessment preloaded, every single project preloaded, you're freeing the teacher up for these one-on-one -on -one and small group conversations and feedback. And that's where we think the magic happens. So in many ways, the technology kind of removes a number of barriers and restrictions in the classroom. So the teacher can spend more individual personal time with students on their learning and giving them feedback on their learning. So during the learn phase, where do the resources actually come from? Are they created by the teachers or are they, for instance, videos off of YouTube? There's three sources. One is open source, so free content that we've kind of categorized and cataloged and put in. Uh, the second is paid content. So typical curriculum providers, the, the best ones we think for math and ELA. And then there's a third where we've curated content. We've paid teachers to create content for us. Um, so it's a combination of the three. I would never sort of rely only on one. We think the mix of the three is, is probably the best way to go. So do students get to choose which ones of these they actually engage with? They do. Teachers can require and teachers can recommend certain ones. Um, generally on a playlist, kids have like 20 or so different options and what to choose. And we say the students have to pick five. They can pick any five and the teacher can require or recommend one or two of those. But we still want the students to choose because when they start to choose, then they take ownership over their own learning, which is really important. Does this approach work for all subjects? I'm just thinking about art or PE, for instance? So obviously PE, we don't want kids on the computer, music class, art. We want them you know, making art. We want them making music. We want them exercising and learning sports and PE. So they're not using the platform, uh, Spark, for those classes. However, 
in those classes, our elective teachers are doing some really exciting things on how they might personalize learning, even in that context. So let me give an example. Um, say in PE class, our gym teachers are teaching basketball. We're gonna learn basketball for the next two weeks. So you can imagine them giving an, an assessment of every student at the beginning of those two weeks on five key basketball drills, shooting, dribbling, passing, defense, and rebounding. And based on that assessment, they say, hey, Sajin, you're a really good dribbler and shooter, but you need to work on your passing, rebounds, and free throws. Okay. Uh, but Robert, you uh, are a really good rebounder and really good free throw shooter, but you've got to work on your outside shot and some of your dribbling. So you could imagine them setting up five different stations. And the amount of time every student spends at each station will vary based on that student's skill level. And the grade that you give them is based on how much they progress from where they started the class. So I'm not gonna give a lot of marks for Sajin if he had a really good jump shot and he didn't do much to work on it. And I might give a fair amount of grades for someone who was a terrible dribbler when we started and is still not a great dribbler, but now they actually have some decent hand-eye coordination. That's an example of the personalization principles that we're trying to use. It gets kids, even in an elective course, even though they're not doing a playlist and they're not using technology, we can still personalize it so that, and my hope is for that gym class, for kids that are terrible at basketball and for kids that are really good at basketball, they'll both get something out of the class. They'll both actually feel like there's something worthwhile here for me. Another thing I'd like to pick up on is mastery learning. You mentioned it briefly a little while ago. Um, this is quite different to how most teachers work or how most education systems are structured. So I wonder if you tell me a little bit more about this and how you use it. Yeah, so you think think about in a traditional classroom, right? They, they chunk up the school year in a number of weeks. They figure out how much content they have to cover in those number of weeks. And so, you know, if it's, we have 12 weeks in a semester and we have to cover these 12 units and it's roughly going to be a week a unit. And we get to end of unit one and we give an assessment and we find out mm, Robert understands about, he got a 60 on the test. Guess what happens? We keep going to, to week two. And you can imagine, let's say it's a class like math where we start off with single digit addition. You don't nail it. Then we go on the single digit subtraction, which is the inverse. Because you didn't nail addition, you're not quite nailing subtraction. And then we move on to multiplication. And then you see this spiraling gap that just keeps growing and growing. And you're never nailing these future topics because you never had the time. So in our model, uh, there is no time bounding on that. If, if you could nail single digit addition in a day, then you'd nailed it and you're already on unit two. If you needed not five days, but you needed eight days on a single digit, you take that. But the point is like, we don't want you to do the next standard single digit subtraction until you've nailed the precursor skill before that. Uh, otherwise we're just promoting inevitable failure. So on a mastery base, that's why those projects are really important. It's where they apply what they've learned. And once they nail the apply, you, by the time they take the assessment in our model, it's the last stage. And there's, there was a number of checks. They chose how they learn. They conference with the peer. They conference with the teacher. They didn't apply. They scored master on the apply. By the time they take the assessment, they're nailing the assessment. So what we're doing is we're reinforcing you're successful. You're nailing. You're, you're achieving. A, you're, getting, you're accomplishing what 
you know, we, you should do. And that hopefully builds up confidence and that confidence leads to momentum and then momentum leads to accelerated student growth. I'd like to explore this idea of mastery a bit further, particularly for students who are either extreme end of the spectrum. Now, I guess there've got to be students who just don't make progress. How do you manage that? How do you manage students who aren't moving forward? So usually it's a function of time and resource, meaning they struggled with it. It was clear they struggled with it. Let them go black and maybe do a few more playlist options. Maybe the teacher pulls them aside and does a small group lesson. But our fundamental belief is every student will eventually master every standard with enough time. So what really becomes, time becomes the variable and learning becomes the constant. In a traditional school, time is actually the constant. The learning is the variable. And in terms of students who are making really rapid progress, I guess this has implications in terms of progression between different types of schools. Absolutely. We've got seventh graders that are doing 11th grade work. There's not many schools in the country that would allow them to do that, but they're ready for it. They're capable of it. So for students at high school at the high end, are you having to buy an additional support, I guess, almost designing college courses? Well, we're not, we're not designing college courses or classes, but um, as we build out our high school, we will partner and offer AP classes and partner with colleges that can offer college credit for students while they're in high school. This is clearly quite an innovative model. I wonder, have you got any headline figures regarding how successful it's been? Yeah, um, you know, our um, we prototyped this in like three different schools. Um, our first school that we launched this in five years ago, after two years, um, they doubled the percentage of kids proficient in English language arts, quintupled in math. The school got an award as a reward school given to schools um, either in the top 5% or trajectory like one. And keep in mind, it was a bottom 5% school. Second school we worked with, when we started, there was only seven out of 832 students were proficient on the state exam in either math or English language arts. Uh, one year later, same kids, different model. Two thirds were making multiple years worth of growth in a single year, fifth highest gains of any school in the entire city of Detroit. Third school, worst performing school in the entire state of Michigan over um, a four-year period, literally ranked 2,362 out of 2,362 schools. We took the, the percentage of kids that were in the 10th percentile, which is really high, like 76% of them, and cut it in half um, in a little less than two years. And at the same time, taking kids that were in the, the top percentile, 70th percentile higher, which when we started was like 1% of the kids. And um, we had anywhere between five and 10% of the kids getting in that top. So we're moving kids out of the bottom and into the top. Uh, we now have three direct run schools. Two we took over last year, one we took over the year before in Newark and Detroit. And again, we're, we're tracking our interim growth measures around this. We are uh, building out an accelerator to potentially partner with schools that are interested in learning this methodology, training them for a year under us uh, with a series of sort of boot camps and giving them our technology platform, Spark, uh, with a year-long fellowship, some design processes, and the platform, allowing them to launch their version of our methodology in their school. And our hope is if we can prototype it with a couple schools this year, then every year we can sort of open that up and invite sort of an annual cohort of schools that want to transform themselves through this model.
it's really great that you're doing this. I guess one of the most important reasons for having charter schools in the first place was to encourage innovation. But there's no point having that unless that innovation is shared or that successful innovation is shared and applied in other schools. Uh, but while we're talking about charter schools, I wonder if you could just tell me, you have a slightly different model in that you don't start new schools, you take over existing schools. Uh, why is that? Yes, I don't think starting new schools from scratch is a pathway to scale. The charter school industry here started 15, 20 years ago, and today we represent just under 5% of all kids. And part of the reason it scales slowly is you have to find a building, you have to enroll kids, recruit them away from existing schools, um, you know, recruit all the staff. And generally, uh, it takes you four to five years to break even. And by the time you've got the school in a good place, then you can probably add a second school. And that takes five or six years. So as a pathway to scale, it's a slow, laborious, time-consuming process. It's somewhat politically charged as well. Meanwhile, you've got all these failing schools that are continuously failing, steeped in intergenerational poverty, without really market solutions coming to them or knocking on their door. So uh, partly because my background has always been in turnarounds, there's a little bit of DNA and, and, and a heartfelt passion for this work and for turnaround work. And partly just pragmatically, it just felt like a better pathway to school. They give you a building, it's full of kids, there's little competition, and there's a willingness to break the status quo and to try something really radically different because the status quo is so fundamentally flawed that almost trying anything else gives them a ray and an opportunity for hope. And when you're doing something innovative, you need space and time to sort of you know, build and prove this out. And, and so why not marry something highly innovative and with high potential to the places of greatest need but also the places where there's the greatest scale potential as well. It's great that you are working in these contexts. I think that's really important. But another accusation that's made against charter schools is that they're highly selective. Is that the case with matchbook schools? No, that's the beauty of, of turnarounds, right? We take part of our agreement and our contract is we'll take every single kid that was there the year before. We want them, actually. There's no screening. There's no, there's no opting out. Everybody that was there before is entitled to a seat. In fact, we put that in our contract and usually the authorizer requires it as well, but that's just a fundamental um, value proposition that, that we offer. So um, no, no enrollment process in terms of screening out kids. In fact, we want the kids that are poorly performing or the, the current system has not served them well or, or failing or, or years behind because we think, I think the, they help prove that the model really works. It's great that you're working with the existing students, but another accusation uh, made against charter schools is that actually quite quickly they move students on, whereas the normal public schools have to keep all of the students. Is that something that Matchbook does? Never, never. That would never be a reason why we would. I mean, you know, if an entire school is failing, it's, it's, you, you got some, at some point you got to look at the adults in the room and say, um, you know, this can't be the kid's fault completely. Uh, there has to be culpability and accountability on what was happening in the school. And our, our, and our view is the school, the school and the school model never really fit these kids. 
if you take a kid in the seventh grade that the test says you took the time to assess them on the first day of school and found that they were reading at a third grade level, how in the world are they going to understand and comprehend seventh grade content? They're just not. You pull out that seventh grade textbook, I don't care how energetic that teacher is, you've set up that teacher to fail. Um, so the design and the model um, are just clearly not able to handle that level of variation and differentiation that is just present in the population you're serving. So, so do you work closely with the community, with parents as well? We do. Um, we partner with them. You can't always assume that there's like a strong parent quotient, you know, when you come into these schools. But we do. We do a kickoff at the beginning of the school year. We do four quarterly um, report cards where we bring the parents in and they have to meet with the teachers individually to discuss the students' progress. Um, we do a number of things with parent councils and after-school events. It's a, it's a slow scaffolding, spiraling sort of way to build their capacity around where their student, their child is, how they're learning, what their rate of progress is. So um, we can't rely on strong parent involvement. Otherwise, I don't think, I think we'll always have an excuse of why we're not going to be successful. But we can build a capacity and partner with these parents so they can have an understanding of what, where their child is and how they best learn and how to best support that learning. And that's a process. I work in education and to be honest, I'm somewhat frustrated with the way that technology is used. Quite often it seems to be done in a fairly piecemeal way. There's just some iPads or something that's randomly used in the classroom. Obviously you've got something that's a lot more strategic and structured. I just wonder, can you give some reasons why this doesn't happen more often, why technology isn't more embedded in learning now? I think, I think they're educators. I, think, I don't think they, they have the skill set. Um, and so when they are interested, usually you're talking to a vendor who's trying to sell them a product, right? And the vendor who's selling them the product is a technology vendor. They're not educators. So they don't, the educators don't always know how to language what the technology needs are of the school. Um, from an academic perspective, or I should say, they know, how to, they know how to articulate their academic needs, but they don't necessarily know how to translate it in, in terms of a technology blueprint. The technology vendors that are selling, you know, smart boards and Promethean boards and laptops and digital content are technologists. So they don't always know how to explain how their technology in academic terms. And so there's a missing language translation design process to sort of make sure that we're not putting uh, square pegs in round holes, right? We're throwing technology at a problem that may be more of a motivation problem or maybe more of a, a staffing problem and vice versa, where, um, you know, we're not trying to have technology solve um, academic and pedag pedagogical issues that the technology wasn't really designed to solve either. So obviously you're, you're working with partner schools in the States. Do you think this approach would work in other countries, uh, perhaps in developing parts of the world? That's a great question. I think it is. I think it, I think it definitely could be. You can imagine like uh, many third world countries would like kill for some sort of content assessment projects platform that weaves and tracks and monitors 
students progressing um, at multiple points, multiple levels with a level of rigor and velocity. Obviously our focus right now is here in the US and making our current schools great and slowly introducing this accelerator concept out and getting that right. But I could imagine a scenario down the road where um, there could be an international market for this. There could be other markets too, including um, you know, kids at um, college remediation where kids you know, dropping out of college because they didn't, they didn't master the prerequisite high school skills or workforce development skills where people have to go back and refresh uh, in order to enter the workforce. Uh, juvenile delinquents that um, are coming out of the prison system. Um, higher ed is a whole nother sort of field. Um, I think this approach around personalized learning, we're definitely not the first and we won't be the last, but I think um, this, this idea and concept of competency-based mastery progression in a personalized way is, uh, is the future of learning, whether it's this country, any country across several education markets. So do you think the cost of this type of approach is going to come down? Yeah, I don't, honestly, I don't actually think the cost is the barrier right now. I mean, digital content uh, generally is getting cheaper and cheaper. Uh, the cost of, you know, one of these devices, laptops, et cetera, are also coming down. Um, it's it's honestly it's part of it is the political will, and the remapping or redesigning of existing legacy processes um, that'll take take the time. Like our higher ed institutions willing to train their colleges of education to train future teachers on this kind of methodology and approach. It'll take time for them to do that. Our you know school districts willing to uh you know uh change their approach around some of this um so all of it is just sort of undoing legacy systems which can be costly from a political standpoint or from a jobs protection standpoint but from a delivery standpoint it's actually cheaper than the way we typically deliver education right now right Looking into the future, is the idea that you'll hand these schools back once you turn them around? Uh, that's a great question. For the three schools we're currently running now, they're charter schools, and the idea was, would be no. Um, we would keep them. We would run them in perpetuity um, because they, they really are enable us to stay tethered to the work. It enables us to make sure that what we're designing and dreaming works with kids, real kids and real teachers. I'd never want to lose that. And you, plus you need to bring people to our schools where they can see and touch and breathe what it looks like. Um, so I think there's a part of it that I, I don't think we ever want to be like a, just a purely ed tech kind of company. I don't ever envision that. And then through the accelerator, we're not trying to directly control and run those schools. We're actually trying to teach them how to fish. So those schools um, will stay independent. Now you can see them becoming certified by us becoming you know, part of an ecosystem or a community of practice. Maybe we certify them to be matchbook approved or matchbook certified and you grow the ecosystem uh, that way. I've always kind of envisioned it as sort of the, um, like we wanna be like, like Intel was, you know, like you, you didn't care what laptop or computer or desktop you bought, whether it was a Dell or a Sony or, but as long as it had that Intel inside little sticker, 
he knew the guts of the, the microprocessor was there. And so in many ways we want to be like a little seal or a little sticker that brand it however you want, keep your school name, do that, but just use and embrace the methodology and the design principles undergirding that. Um, that's kind of our, our long-term play for, for strategy and vision. So as my final question, I just wondered if somebody wanted to find out more information or perhaps even get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do this? I'd go to our website, um, matchbooklearning.com. Um, and at matchbooklearning.com, you'll see uh, a bunch of resources. Probably most importantly, you'll see um, a regular blog that we sort of keep um, that's updating what we're learning and how we're learning it as we learn. Our Twitter handle is uh, at matchbooklearn. And um, yeah, I would say those are probably the best ways to stay up to date because uh, we'll share what we're learning through those, through those social media vehicles. So Sajan, that kind of brings us to the end of our conversation. Thanks so much for your time. It's been really fascinating to find out more about the work that Matchbook does. And I hope you have really good success in the future. No problem. Take care. If you like this podcast and would like to hear more, please share it with friends and colleagues, rate it and leave feedback. Until next time. Bye.